0: This is a bit uh, different to my last talk to you all on Zoom. And this time you can't even mute me. Uh, So apologies for that. Um, But good morning. Yeah, this is what we're doing. Climate change part two, getting ready to live differently. This is the second of uh, two talks on climate change as part of our series on justice and the kingdom of God. And just to recap, last week Ruth looked at three myths about climate change from a biblical and a Christian perspective, and she concluded three main things. So firstly, we have a special role as people, and particularly as Christians, to care for God's creation. Secondly, climate change is disproportionately affecting the poor and the marginalized around the world. Therefore, if we care about injustice, then we should also care about climate change. And thirdly, the restoration of the earth is part of God's long-term plan for the world and therefore part of our mission to extend God's kingdom. And what we want to do in the rest of this series is look at the so what of these three things. If these are true and we believe them, what should we be doing differently as individuals and as a church? And in the next two weeks, Howard Bell and Rachel Mosley are going to get quite practical on what we can do to make a difference on climate change. But today, and before we do that, I wanted to look at how we can get ready. What needs to change in us first, in our outlook, in our priorities, and in our hearts before we can start to live differently? And I think the starting point for that is where Ruth ended her talk last week, you may remember. How do we feel about climate change? And Ruth suggested, that there are three feelings we may have which can prevent us from living differently on climate change, and I certainly relate to those. So the first feeling she suggested is apathy. Now, I can personally feel quite apathetic about climate change. Why is that? Well, firstly, it's such a slow-moving crisis. It seems so far off that sometimes it doesn't feel that significant compared with other problems in the here and now. Just think about COVID over the past 18 months. And the media can actually portray some of, the impact, some of the impacts of climate change as quite positive. Summer heat waves can be celebrated, as we're told the UK will be hotter than the Costa del Sol. Kent vineyards now produce sparkling wine, which is apparently better than their equivalent in France. And I personally quite like warmer weather. I quite like sparkling wine. And sometimes I just think, is this really such a big deal after all? And even if it is such a big problem, I can feel apathetic about my personal responsibility to act. Surely, as one person in eight billion on our planet, nothing I can do will really make a difference. And anyway, our government has already pledged that the UK will be net zero carbon by 2050. COP26 is coming up next month. Isn't this really just for world leaders to work out what to do? So I can find plenty of reasons to be apathetic. The second feeling, Ruth mentioned was feeling overwhelmed. And I don't know about you, but sometimes thinking about the complexity and the scale of the challenge to tackle climate change can feel overwhelming. Take, for example, the Paris goal of limiting the world's temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. Now, science tells us that this limit is an absolute must to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And to stand a chance of making that target, we need to cut our global emissions by around half by 2030 and to net zero by 2050. Currently, carbon emissions are actually increasing globally every year. And so to reverse that trend and make a rapid, steep decline in the opposite direction is a herculean task, one that is going to involve governments, businesses, financial institutions across the world, making radical changes in sectors from energy to transport to food production. And suddenly my efforts to buy energy-saving light bulbs and bamboo toothbrushes seem very small indeed. And even when I try to make a small personal contribution, doing the right thing can feel very confusing. Some of you know that I'm on a sabbatical at the moment looking after my two kids. And one of the challenges I face on a regular basis, as with many of you parents, is how to get them to eat green vegetables. They do quite like green beans, though, relative to other vegetables. So in the winter, I buy them some fair trade green beans, which are imported from Kenya, and fair trade is good, right? But then I realize that those beans are actually transported by air freight, which means that they've got a big carbon footprint, and also they aren't organic, which means that they use fertilizer, which is also carbon intensive. So what then should I do in the winter to help make a difference? Should I not buy the green beans and just buy local organic vegetables only? but then that basically means just Brussels sprouts from about November through till March. And my kids hate Brussels sprouts and Ray refuses to eat them. And that's just one issue of hundreds. Don't get me started on oat milk versus almond milk versus soy milk versus dairy, or whether paper shopping bags are better than plastic or if carbon offsetting really works. Tackling climate change is complex and it can feel overwhelming. And by the way, for the... Answers on which veg and milk to buy next week. Make sure you listen in next week for Howard's talk, where he will reveal all on those complex issues. Just, just joking. Um, so, the third feeling Ruth mentioned is anxiety. I recently watched one of David Attenborough's documentaries on climate change. Now, as ever, it's amazing, but the unpacking of the damage being done to the earth and the possible trajectories for the future of the world over the next hundred years did induce some anxiety in me. And it can feel as though we're bombarded by alarming headlines and sound bites about climate change. Greta Thunberg famously said this to the World Economic Forum in 2019. I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic and to act as if the house was on fire. And I don't quote that critically. There's good justification to respond to climate change as if it is a crisis, but it is easy, I think, to let some of that sentiment transfer into anxiety. So it's perhaps no surprise that climate change is generating a new and rising type of of anxiety termed eco-anxiety. A recent global survey of 10,000 young people from around the world found that 60% felt very worried or extremely worried about climate change. 45% said that their feelings about the climate affected their daily lives. 56% say that they think humanity is doomed, and 40% are hesitant to have children. And Isn't that so sad to hear? I think we need to be aware as a church that this is something that is likely to be already affecting or could affect our young people and our children within the context of rising mental health challenges. And if any of us suffer from anxiety about climate change, then overall we're less likely to be able to respond effectively. So, apathy, feeling overwhelmed, and anxiety. So far, this isn't the most uplifting of talks I've ever given. If you're listening to this on the podcast, can I encourage you not to switch off now? This is the low point of the talk. I promise it will get better. So hang in there for another 15 minutes, and we'll look at what we can do in response to these feelings. So let's start with a parable from the New Testament we're all familiar with. If you turn with me to Luke 10, 30 to 37. Can you just go one slide back? Yeah. Thanks. So Luke 10, 30 to 37, starting at verse 30. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So you probably know this story pretty well. To summarize. A Jewish man suffers a terrible injustice at the hands of some robbers. The priest and the Levite see him and walk on choosing not to help him. And it's the foreigner, the Samaritan, who does in an incredibly compassionate way. So what can this teach us about responding to climate change? Well, let's think back to Ruth's talk and the second of the two points I flagged earlier. Climate change is disproportionately affecting the poor and the marginalized around the world. Therefore, if we care about injustice, then we should also care about climate change. And just to unpack that a bit, think back to Ruth's example from last week of Mozambique. Um, You may remember that she told us about the time she visited Mozambique and saw firsthand the devastation of the cyclone in 2019. And indeed, did a bit of research on this, the Global Climate Index ranks Mozambique as the country most affected by climate change in the world. One of the striking things about Mozambique and other poor countries is how little fossil fuels they burn as a country compared with us in the UK and other rich countries. According to the World Bank's latest figures, the per capita average of fossil fuels burned in Mozambique is 0.2 metric tons. While in the UK, ours is 5.4 metric tons per person. That's 27 times higher here in the UK. So we burn, on average, 27 times more fossil fuels than the average Mozambican, but they are bearing the brunt of the impacts of climate change, and not us. That's an injustice, isn't it? It's not fair that the people of Mozambique are more vulnerable to climate shocks than we are in the UK, whilst we continue to reap the benefits of high-carbon lifestyles. So what can the parable of the Good Samaritan teach us about what to do with our feelings of apathy? being overwhelmed and anxiety when faced with injustice. The next slide. Well, the priest and the Levite may well have felt those things too as they chose to walk by. They may have been apathetic to the man's suffering, thinking that it was up to someone else to do something about it. They may have found the situation overwhelming, feeling like they didn't have the right skills or the right resources to help. And they may have been anxious about a distressing and dangerous situation. The Samaritan probably felt those things too. But he responded differently. Rather than being apathetic, he cared. Verses 33 to 34. He took pity on him, bandaged the wounds of his enemy and put him on his own donkey. Secondly, rather than being overwhelmed, he did what he could to help. Verse 34 to 35. He brought him to an inn and took care of him giving the innkeeper two denarii to cover the cost of his care. Notice what this care actually involved for the Samaritan. It required sacrifice, time, and money. A denarius was the usual daily wage of a day laborer, so, so a fair amount, and it wasn't convenient for him. And thirdly, rather than being anxious, he has hope when the situation must have seemed desperate. Verse 35, he says to the innkeeper, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Samaritan doesn't know whether the man will make it through, but he acts as though he will, and the best will happen. So he has hope, not anxiety. So let's imagine that we didn't feel apathetic about climate change. We cared. Let's imagine that we didn't feel overwhelmed, but we did what we could to make a difference let's imagine we weren't overcome by anxiety, we had hope when things seemed desperate. What would that look like? Well, as a former history student, I'm instinctively drawn to what we can learn from the past, sorry to say. Um, In thinking about this talk, I wonder what lessons we could learn from past cases of injustice where Christians have been ahead of the curve in responding. You might think about the civil rights movement in America or even the Make Poverty History campaign more recently, for example. But I think a particularly relevant example, um, really particularly relevant parallel to climate change is actually the campaign against the slave trade in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. So I hope you're up for a very short history lesson. Can we have... Yeah, that slide, that's fine. Um, At that time... in in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Like fossil fuels today, slavery was an integral part of our economy and a driver of prosperity. There were many jobs and industries dependent on the slave trade. Port cities like Liverpool and Bristol thrived partly due to slavery. There were powerful vested interests, including some churches and Christian leaders who had a direct involvement. And it wasn't just the elite who benefited. Everyday products such as sugar were also produced in plantations run by slaves. And like the impact of fossil fuels, the impact of this injustice was often far off and out of sight. So the situation was deeply ingrained, it was depressing, and it was messy, much like fossil fuels and climate change today. Yet in response, a group of Christians did rise up, firstly Quakers, and then the Clapham sect, and most famously William Wilberforce, who made a significant difference towards the eventual abolition of the slave trade and then slavery itself. So what can we learn from how these Christians overcame apathy, feeling overwhelmed, and anxiety to confront a complex global injustice? Well, one of the fascinating things I found about Wilberforce when I researched this talk is how he came to care so passionately about tackling the slave trade, his own journey for caring, how he got there. Actually, what's interesting is that Wilberforce doesn't seem to have shown very much interest in the slave trade in the early part of his career as an MP. He had other areas of focus, and he wasn't particularly involved in some of the early efforts led by Quakers and others. What changed for him was simply talking to others who did care, and who were well informed. According to several accounts, there was actually a woman called Margaret Middleton, who was the catalyst behind Wilberforce's first involvement in the campaign. She became passionate about the injustice of the slave trade, having talked to her local vicar who had spent time himself in the West Indies and witnessed slavery firsthand. She tried to persuade her husband, also an MP, to bring a motion in Parliament. He declined, but they together decided that Wilberforce would be the ideal candidate, eventually persuading him to lead the motion in Parliament. A bit later, he was influenced by Thomas Clarkson, an anti-slavery campaigner. When they first met, Clarkson reported that Wilberforce was passionate but not very well informed about the slave trade. So along with others, he sought to educate Wilberforce, including jointly interviewing first-hand witnesses of the slave trade. Fast forward a few years and Wilberforce is delivering a three and a half hour speech in Parliament during the first debate on whether to abolish the slave trade. And I'll just read you some of his closing words, which I find pretty amazing. He said, The nature and all the circumstances of this trade are now laid open to us. We can no longer plead ignorance. We cannot evade it. It is now an object placed before us. We cannot pass it. We may spurn it. We may kick it out of our way. But we cannot turn aside so as to avoid seeing it. For it is now so directly before our eyes that this house must decide and must justify to all the world and to their own consciences the rectitude of the grounds, and the principles of their decision. So in the course of a few years, Wilberforce had gone from being largely a bystander to becoming a powerful and passionate leader against the slave trade in Parliament and the country. And that happened, firstly, because other Christians had cared and shared their concerns with him, and secondly, because he himself got better informed, and the more informed he was, the more he cared. I think a second thing we can learn is about acting in our spheres of influence, however small they may be. So to continue this history lesson, despite Wilberforce's passionate speech, Parliament didn't at that point vote to end the slave trade. And in response, members of the Baptist church released pamphlets calling for a boycott of sugar from plantations run by slave labor in the West Indies. And the impact was huge. An estimated 300,000 people boycotted sugar, and sales dropped dramatically. And one of the really striking things about this was that it was women and children who actually led the way in the boycott. In the case of children, giving up their sweets and their cakes to make a difference. And I love this next quote from the diary of Catherine Plimley in Shropshire from 1792. She said, I have before noticed in this particular instance as among those children who were informed on the subject I have heard of more readiness to give up the use of sugar than among grown people. I love the use of the word readiness there. So it was children who were making a sacrifice and leading the grown-ups, using their minuscule purchasing power in sweet shops to send a message about the change that they wanted to see. And as a consequence, at the bigger picture, Wilberforce was able to argue from a position of strength in later debates in Parliament as he was able to show that this was an issue that people really cared about and were willing to make a stand for. Lastly, history lesson nearly over. How did Wilberforce and his friends respond to setbacks and anxiety? Well, he had quite a few, and the road to abolishing the slave trade wasn't easy. Following that first debate, it took another 18 years before Parliament eventually voted in favor of abolishing the slave trade. On one occasion, his bill to abolish the slave trade was set to win, but at the last moment, six of his supporters chose to go to the opera in Covent Garden rather than attend the vote. And again, the motion to abolish the slave trade lost this time by four votes. Wilberforce was devastated and considered giving up altogether, but he was reportedly persuaded not to by his close friend and mentor, John Newton, who you may remember is famous for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace. And replying to Wilberforce, In his deep anxiety, Newton wrote this. Hopefully you can see that. These are just a few excerpts from what's a really long letter. Though you have not fully succeeded in your persevering endeavors to abolish the slave trade as yet, the business is still in train. It is true that you live in the midst of difficulties and snares and you need a double guard of watchfulness and prayer. But since you know both your need of help and where to look for it, I may say to you, as Darius to Daniel, thy God whom thou service continually is able to preserve and deliver you. Indeed, the great point for our comfort in life is to have a well-grounded persuasion that we are where all things considered we ought to be. The promise, my grace is sufficient for thee, is necessary to support us in the smoothest scenes and is equally able to support us in the most difficult. And what an amazing encouragement that must have been. There's so much that I can take from that letter, but I was really struck by the reminder that God's business is still in train, that idea of the kingdom that is now and not yet. And that we can take comfort from being where we ought to be despite setbacks. And for Wilberforce, this letter was the encouragement that he needed to continue his campaign against the slave trade, culminating in its abolition in 1807 and the abolition of slavery in 1833. So, back to the present, and coming into land, how then can we respond to feeling apathetic, overwhelmed, and anxious about climate change? Let's start with apathy. How can we care like the Good Samaritan, or about Wilberforce and those anti-slavery campaigners about climate change? I really like this quote, from the writer Stephen Boomer Prediger. And he wrote, We care for only what we love. We love only what we know. We truly know only what we experience. And I think you saw that was true for Wilberforce. The more he experienced, the more he knew about slavery, the more he loved, and the more he cared. In the same way, the more that we know about and experience the impact of climate change, the more we'll care. Now we can't all travel to the North Pole to look at retreating glaciers or visit the devastation of cyclists in Mozambique, in Mozambique, but we can talk to our friends, we can get informed, we can watch documentaries, we can discuss this in our house groups, and we can pray and we can ask God for more of his heart on this issue. So let's lead the way in how much we know and how much we care about climate change. Secondly, rather than being overwhelmed, let's turn our care into action by doing what we can to respond to the injustice of climate change. The topic of what we can do at a personal level and at a church level to respond uh, is going to be covered by the talks over the next two weeks. But for now, let me just share this thought with you from David Attenborough from his recent book. He writes, we're at a unique stage in our history Never before have we had such an awareness of what we're doing to the planet, and never before have we had the power to do something about that. Surely we all have a responsibility to care for our blue planet. The future of humanity, and indeed, all life on Earth, now depends on us. We may not feel particularly well resourced, or knowledgeable, or influential, to personally change the course of history on climate change. But we do all have a carbon footprint, and we make decisions on how we spend our money, how we travel, how we buy our food, how we heat our homes. All of us spend time with other people, in social circles, or at work. All of us have skills and creativity. So what could we do to turn care into action? Perhaps we could cut our own carbon footprint and make some sacrifices to live a more sustainable lifestyle and share our resources more evenly. Perhaps we could use our purchasing power in terms of what we buy, where we invest our money, to send a message on the kind of future we want, like those children did in the 1790s in the sugar boycott. Perhaps we could help plot a path to a more sustainable future, getting involved in innovations that help address the climate crisis, or speaking out for doing things differently at work. And we can certainly pray, for example, for a good outcome at COP26 next month. And finally, we can live with hope and not anxiety. I was quite moved to read a recent interview with Greta Thunberg, in which she describes herself as very happy now, having struggled for years with depression, and she put this down to her activism and her friendships, and no doubt those can go a really long way in helping to manage this this issue of eco-anxiety. But as Christians, I think in many ways, we're in a really privileged position to deal with anxiety on this issue. Not only do we have the ability to ask God for help, as John Newton wrote to Wilberforce, but we also hold on to that third point from Ruth's talk last week. The restoration of the earth is part of God's long-term plan for the world, and therefore part of our mission to extend God's kingdom. We believe that God is involved, that he cares for creation, he has a plan for the restoration of the earth, and that does, I think, give us grounds for hope when things may seem desperate. We also believe that he wants us to be involved in that restoration and has a part for us to play. And if we find that part, we can, as Newton put it, take comfort in being all things considered where we ought to be. So let's have the band back and a short time of ministry. Will you um, stand with me?